The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. I remember one thing in particular. The Valley of Fear. The Valley of Fear? Yes, he said more than once. I've been in the Valley of Fear. I'm not out of it yet. Of course, you asked him what he meant by that. Oh, I did. He would only shake his head and tell me it was bad enough for one of us to have been in its shadow. He once said, Please, God, it shall never fall upon you. Yet for the beautiful Mrs. Douglas, the shadow had fallen in the shape of murder. And it was still a mystery for my friend Holmes. My name is Watson, uh, Dr. Watson. And it was my privilege to share the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. If I may summarize the case so far, I will then tell you what happened next in the Valley of Fear. I set down exactly what Holmes said in my notebooks. any case where the features have been more peculiar. My friend Sherlock Holmes said to me, <laughs> downright baffling, I'd have said. Holmes had received a warning from an informer that danger threatened a man called Douglas at Bolston in Sussex. Within a few moments, we'd had Inspector MacDonald of Scotland Yard round to tell us that one John Douglas of Bolston Manor had been murdered and a sort of code message left on a card beside the body. VV341, it had said. Just VV341. When we got to Burlston, we learned that the dead man had been found with his face almost blown to bits and an American sawn-off shotgun across his body. The murderer had taken the wedding ring from his finger but to do so, he'd had to remove another ring which Douglas had been wearing above it. And yet this other ring was still on the dead man's finger when we saw him. Well, there were other clues. A, a sort of brand mark on the dead man's arm. Oh, and uh, Holmes seemed to be interested that one of a pair of dumbbells was missing from the room. Can't think why, though. And then Douglas's friend Cecil Barker, who'd found the body, came in to tell us that a bicycle had just been found hidden near the manor house, as though the murderer had meant to get away on it, but uh, hadn't. We had a look at it. There was nothing to help us. Common enough make, nothing in the saddlebag. So we went back into the house, and Inspector Mason of the Sussex Constabulary rang for the butler Ames to come and answer us. Gentlemen, I heard the bell, and Mr. Ames is round to the kitchen garden for a minute. Uh, can I do anything? Oh, this is Mrs. Allen, the housekeeper. Uh, Inspector MacDonald, Scotland Yard. How do you do? Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, Mrs. Allen. They'll want a word with you later, but now if you... No, no, never mind for the moment. We'll speak to Mrs. Allen now she's here. Uh, take a seat, ma'am. Oh, Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Now, Mrs. Allen, take your time and tell us what happened here last night where you were concerned. Yes, sir. 
Well, I was in my room when the bell rang. It rang very violently, so... That was the first sound you heard? Yes, Mr. Holmes. I didn't hear the gun go off, if that's what you mean. My room's right at the back of the house. I see. Did you notice the time when the bell rang? No, sir. Not then. I came out to see what it was about, and I met Mr. Ames coming from his pantry at the back of the house. Go on, then, Mrs. Allen. We came up to the front of the house together. Just at the foot of the stairs, we saw Mrs. Douglas coming down. In a hurry? No, just walking normally. Then Mr. Barker came rushing out of the study, this room. He rushed up to Mrs. Douglas and said, For God's sake, go back to your room. Poor Jack is dead. You can do nothing. For God's sake, go back. Did she faint? No, sir. Didn't scream or anything. Mr. Barker turned to me and told me to take her back to her room. And I did. Mrs. Allen, you're quite sure you heard no sound of the gun going off? Nothing which you might have thought at the time of something else? Nothing at all, sir. As I say, my room's a long way back. And I'm a little hard of hearing. Quite, I understand. Oh, I did hear something a while before. Like a, a door slamming, I, I thought at the time. How long before? Oh, half an hour before the bell rang. Oh, I see. Easily half an hour, without a doubt. Uh, any more questions, Mr. Holmes? No, thank you. Well, thank you then, ma'am. Perhaps you'll ask Mr. Barker to step this way. Oh, very good, sir. Hmm. Singularly interesting. Well, thank you, Mr. Barker. It doesn't add much to what we've already heard from you, of course, but we have to... Of course, I understand. Uh, Mr. Barker, I understand that Mr. Douglas emigrated from Ireland to America and eventually reached California, where you met him. Uh, you became partners in a successful mining venture at a place called Benito Canyon? That is so. Mr. Douglas was a widower, I believe. He was. Now, when Mr. Douglas left America to come home, was it a sudden decision? Yes, it was. And the more I think about it, Mr. Holmes, the more I'm convinced this secret society idea has got something to tell us about all this. Some sort of feud, perhaps, a grievance from the days before you met him. Uh, maybe, maybe, Doctor. Uh. I understand Mr. Douglas's marriage took place in this country about five years ago. Had you returned here by then? I was his best man. I see. Did you know Mrs. Douglas before the marriage? No, I did not. But you've seen a good deal of her since. I've seen a good deal of him since. Mr. Barker, did Mr. Douglas entirely approve of your friendship with his wife? <laughs> you imagine that I imagine nothing. We only want the facts. Some inquiries are offensive. They're not meant to be, sir. I must repeat my question. And I must refuse to answer. You can refuse to answer, but that might be taken as an answer in itself. Now, did Mr. Douglas approve your friendship with his wife? You can take it from me, gentlemen. No man ever had a more loving, faithful wife. But I can say no friend could be more loyal than I was. You're aware, sir, that the dead man's wedding ring has been taken from his finger. So it appears. Under the circumstances, wouldn't it appear to most people that there might be some link between the marriage and the murder? I cannot profess to say what it suggests. There is one more small point, Mr. Barker. When you entered the room last night, there was only a candle lighted on the table, was there not? 
That is so. You rang for help at once? Yes, and it arrived very speedily, within a minute or so. And yet, according to Ames' statement to the police sergeant, when he arrived in the room, the candle was out, and the lamp had been lit. Why did you pause to do all that with such a startling tragedy before you? I, uh... Well, uh, the candle threw a very bad light. The lamp was on the table, so I lit it. And blew out the candle? Yes. We'd better see Mrs. Douglas. Yes, yes, of course. I'll fetch her for you. Have you found out anything yet, Inspector? Nothing yet, ma'am. Well, we're pressing ahead with our inquiries. Inspector, every possible effort must be made. Oh, rest assured, ma'am. It would help us if you could answer a few questions now. Yes, I'm ready. Uh, oh, thank you, Dr. Watson. Mrs. Douglas, we've heard from Mr. Barker that you didn't enter this room after the tragedy occurred. No, he turned me back on the stairs. Uh -huh. He begged me to go back to my room. Yes, quite so. Uh, you had had the shot and you had come down at once? Yes. How long would it be after hearing the shot that you were stopped on the stair by Mr. Barker? Oh, it may have been a couple of minutes. It's so hard to reckon the time exactly. It was all like some dreadful dream. Of course. But can you give us any idea how long your husband had been downstairs before you had the shot? I can't say. I, I didn't hear him leave his dressing room. He did the rounds of the house every night. He was so nervous. Nervous, Mum? Mm. Nervous of what? Wildfire. Anything else? No, nothing. What should there be? During the five years you were married to him, did you ever hear him speak of anything that happened in America, something that might still bring danger to him? Well, yes. I've often thought there was something, well, um... Something dangerous hanging over him. Mm. I asked him about it more than once, but he wouldn't tell me anything. But he knew I knew. How did you know, Mrs. Douglas? Oh, how does a woman know there's something on her husband's mind? Oh, I knew it by the way he wouldn't talk about parts of his life in America. I knew it by the way he'd look at unexpected strangers. I knew it by words he'd let fall. Might I ask what the words were, Mrs. Douglas? Well, I remember one thing in particular. The Valley of Fear. The Valley of Fear? Yes, he said more than once, I've been in the Valley of Fear. I'm not out of it yet. Of course, you asked him what he meant by that. Oh, I did. He would only shake his head and tell me it was bad enough for one of us to have been in its shadow. He once said, Please, God, it will never fall upon you. Nothing more? No, nothing more. Mrs. Douglas, no doubt you heard about this strange business of your late husband's wedding ring. Oh, but it's being taken from his finger. Yes. It's certainly a most extraordinary thing. Why, he couldn't even get it off himself. It was much too tight. Mm -hmm. mm. It suggests nothing to you? No. No, nothing at all. Uh -huh. Well, Mrs. Douglas, we won't detain you any longer. No doubt there'll be some other points later, but we can refer them to you as they arise. Oh, thank you, gentlemen. You have only to send for me. Uh, love you. Oh, thank you, Dr. Watson. I should like to see Ames again, Mr. Mack, if you don't mind. All right, Mr. Holmes. I'll ring. 
She's something a deucedly lovely woman. Yes, and this fellow Barker's been down here a good deal. He's a man who might be attractive to women. You rang, gentlemen? Yes, Ames. I'd like you to recall for me what Mr. Barker had on his feet last night when you joined him in here. After the, uh, the crime, sir. That's right. Why, he had his bedroom slippers on, sir. I remember. I brought him his boots to go to the police. Uh, where are the slippers now, do you know? Uh, under the chair in the hall, Mr. Holmes. Saw them just a while ago. But, sir... It's important for us to know which marks may have been made by Mr. Barker's feet and which are from someone else's. Oh, I see, sir. I may say, sir, that I noticed Mr. Barker's slippers were stained with blood. So were mine when I looked at them later. That's natural enough, considering the condition of the room. Oh, by the way, where is Mr. Barker now? He's out in the garden, sir. Well, then, to save bothering him, perhaps you'd just bring those slippers in here before you go. Certainly, sir. What's all this about, Holmes? Have you got an idea? We must leave no possible clue unsifted, my dear Watson. Yeah. Here you are, sir. Ah, thank you, Ames. That will be all. We'll replace the slippers ourselves. Very good, sir. Let's have a look at these slippers. Strange. Very strange indeed. And now let's have a look at that windowsill. Try this slipper over the stake. And... Oh, it's, it's exactly. Look, Inspector. Never a doubt of it. Then that mark came from Barker's own slipper. But what's the game, Mr. Holmes? Try, Mr. Holmes. What's the game? My colleague stood for a little while. Oh, yes, sir. I thought I'd take a turn around the garden, if it is the garden I'm heading for. That's right, sir. Keep along this hedge till just down there. There? Uh, there, where that tree is. I see. There's a break in the hedge there, straight into the garden. Ah, oh, splendid. Thank you, Ames. Very good, sir. <laughs> Mrs. Douglas and I were just sitting here uh, talking this terrible business over, and would you be so good as to come and have a word with the lady for a moment? Very well, if you wish. Dr. Watson, I have no doubt you heard us laughing just now. Hmm. I'm afraid you're thinking me callous and hard. It is no business of mine, ma'am. Oh, perhaps someday, Doctor, you'll do me more justice. Oh, it's... Only you realize... Ivy, there is no reason why Dr. Watson should realize. As he says, it is no business of his. Exactly. 
And so I'll beg your leave to resume my walk. No. One moment, Doctor. There's one question you can answer with more authority than anyone else in the world. And it may make a great difference to me. Take care. It's all right, Cecil. Dr. Watson, please hear me. Very well. You know Mr. Sherlock Holmes better than anyone else. Now, supposing... Supposing a matter were brought confidentially to his knowledge, is it absolutely necessary for him to pass it on to the detectives? He would not conceal from them anything which would help bring a criminal to justice. Beyond that, ma'am, I'm not prepared to go. If you want fuller information, I'd refer you to Mr. Sherlock Holmes himself. Now, if you'll be kind enough to excuse me, I'll be on my way. No, Watson. I want none of their confidences. No, I thought you wouldn't. You acted quite correctly. No confidences. They can prove mighty awkward if it comes to an arrest for conspiracy and murder. You think it's going to come to that, Holmes? <laughs> My dear Watson, when I have exterminated this fourth egg, <laughs> I will be ready to put you in touch with the whole situation. And you've, uh, you've fathomed it already? Oh, I don't say we've fathomed it exactly. Mm. Far from it. But when we face that missing dumbbell... Missing dumbbell? One dumbbell, Watson. Consider an athlete with one dumbbell. Huh? Picture to yourself the unilateral development, the imminent danger of a spinal curvature through using one dumbbell. Shocking. Now then, for a nice, quiet pipe. Oh... What's it all about, then, Holmes? A lie, Watson. What? Barker's whole story is a great, big, thumping, obtrusive, uncompromising lie. Uh. But it's corroborated by Mrs. Douglas. Therefore, they're both lying. And they're in a conspiracy to lie. According to the story we've been given... The murderer had less than a minute after he'd committed the crime to take that tight-fitting ring from Douglas's finger. Oh. And that meant taking the top ring off first and putting it back again. He had to do all that and get clean out of it before Barker came in. I say it was impossible. Well, pretty tall order, isn't it? Impossible. Now, about the candle. Yeah. With all the other things he had to do, would the murderer also blow out the candle and light the lamp before leaving? No, hardly. Hardly, indeed. Barker is lying when he says he lit the lamp after he found the body. It was lit already. Well, I say then, Holmes, you're... you're Holmes, except Ames. Well, he was in the pantry, or so he says. We'll accept that for the moment. Ames says he heard no sound. Yeah. We'll accept that also. The pantry's a long way back, and there are several doors between it and his room, but the housekeeper's room isn't so far. I've been down to see it, and there's no reason for not hearing the two barrels of a shotgun fired here in the study from there. Yes, but she's rather deaf, though, and she, she, she told us. Even so, she also told us she remembered hearing a sound like a door slamming half an hour before the alarm was given. Mm -hmm. That would be a quarter to eleven. There's no doubt in my mind that it was the actual shot she heard, and that was the time it was fired. A quarter to eleven... 
Well, I don't quite follow, Holmes. Both Barker and Mrs. Douglas admit they heard the shot. Now, if it was half an hour before Barker gave the alarm, what were they doing all the time, assuming they aren't the actual murderers? Exactly. What were they doing? Now, I'm hanged if I can give them the benefit of the doubt. What innocent woman would sit there laughing like I saw her and heard her a few hours after her husband had been murdered? No, it was badly stage-managed, Watson. If there had been nothing else, this would have been enough to suggest conspiracy to my mind. Then you say, Holmes, that Barker and Mrs. Douglas are definitely the murderers. If you put it that Mrs. Douglas and Barker know the truth about the murder and are conspiring to conceal it, then I'm in full agreement. But just for the mental exercise, let's suppose that there was a guilty secret, a really shameful secret of some kind in this man Douglas's life. This leads to his murder by someone from outside, an avenger, perhaps. Mm, all right. So this avenger murders him. Before he gets away, Barker and Mrs. Douglas reach the room. The murderer convinces them that any attempt to arrest him will lead to the publication of some hideous scandal. They let him go. They, they, they may even have lowered the drawbridge for him to escape by and then raised it again. Yes. Well, now, after the murderer has gone, they realize that they placed themselves in a position where it may be difficult to prove that they were not the murderers. So they go to work quickly and rather clumsily to cover up. They mark the windowsill with Barker's bloodstained slipper to indicate how the murderer is supposed to have escaped. Yeah. Then Mrs. Douglas creeps back to her room. Barker stays downstairs and raises the alarm half an hour after the gun was actually fired. Now, Watson, how will that suit you? Very good, Holmes. Very good indeed. Yes. The only thing to do after building up such an elaborate supposition, of course, is to prove it. Well, in heaven's name, can you do that? Well... I think an evening alone in the study will help me. Evening alone? Now, why on earth... I've already arranged it for the estimable aim. Oh. I shall sit in the study and see if its atmosphere brings me inspiration. <laughs> oh, my dear Holmes. <laughs> you laugh, friend Watson. <laughs> well, we shall see. Oh, by the way, you have that big umbrella of yours with you, have you not? Yes, I have. I'll borrow it, if I may. Remind me to collect it this evening before I shut myself away, will you? Certainly, certainly. And meanwhile, we've nothing much to do but wait for our colleagues to come back from Tunbridge Wells, where they've been trying to get that bicycle identified. I'm afraid they're shooting in the dark. Well, I don't mind admitting we were taking a shot in the dark, Mr. Holmes, but we've hit our target all the same. You've identified the bicycle inspector? We have, Dr. Watson, and got a description of our man. Great. Yes. Congratulations. Well, we started from the fact that Mr. Douglas had been in Tunbridge Wells the day before the murder. He'd seemed nervous the morning after he'd been there. And it seemed possible that while there, he'd become conscious of some danger. Very sound reasoning indeed. Well, we took the bicycle over with us and did the rounds of the hotels. 
It was identified at once. Yes, by the manager of the Eagle Commercial. Said it belonged to a man named Hargrave who'd taken a room there two days before. The landlord had no doubt the chap was an American. Well, well, you've done some really solid work. While I've just been sitting here spinning theories with my friends. <laughs> That's just it, Mr. Holmes. Practical measures are what get the results. Yes, we may fit in with your theories, Holmes. That may be. But let's hear the end. Uh, how about his description, Mr. Mack? Oh, I've got it here, such as it is. As usual, nobody seems to have taken much notice of him. About five foot nine in height, age about fifty, hair slightly grizzled, greyish moustache, curved nose, oh, uh -huh. a rather forbidding sort of face, they reckoned. He'd been seen to wear a heavy grey suit with a reefer jacket. He had a short overcoat, yellowish, and a soft cap. What about the shotgun? Uh, no one saw that. It could have fitted in his valise or under his overcoat quite easily. Well, Mr. Mack, how do you think this bears on the general case? Well, I reckon he may have cycled over here that morning, maybe hung about keeping an eye on the house, hoping Mr. Douglas would come out. You see, Mr. Holmes, I reckon he'd intended using that shotgun outside the house, not indoors. Oh, well, no one would think twice about a sporting gun going off in these parts. Very good indeed, Mr. Mack. Eh, Watson? Splendid idea. <laughs> Obvious, come to think of it. Well, uh, Mr. Douglas didn't appear. What was Hargrave to do next? He left his bicycle and approached the house at twilight. The drawbridge was down and nobody about. He took a chance and slipped across and into the first room he came to. No one saw him. All right so far? Capital. Pray go on. He got in behind the curtains and waited there till quarter past eleven when Mr. Douglas came in. He shot him and got clear. He thought the bicycle might be identified, so he left it and made straight off to London or some other place where he got a, a safe hiding place. Very good and clear. So far as it goes. Eh? How do you mean? My version has a different ending, I'm afraid. Oh, it has, has it? Well, let's hear it, then. Ah, ah, ah. Remember our bargain, Mr. Matt. No theories until I have the facts to support. No, but, but no, yet, Mr. Matt. I intend to go ahead with a little investigation of my own tonight. It's just possible it may contribute something to our common cause. Want us to help? Anything to get us on a bit further? No, 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 thank you. My wants are simple. Darkness. And Dr. Watson's umbrella? What's that? I don't know what you're talking about, Mr. Holmes. Do you, Dr. Watson? <laughs> I haven't the faintest idea. No? Well, there's not much to it, really. Just a few lines of thought leading back to one basic question. And what's that, then? Why should an athletic man develop his frame with so unnatural an instrument as a single dumbbell? Oh, really? Well, perhaps I shall find out tonight. The Valley of Fear was one of the stories about Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. We're presenting it in three parts. You just heard part two. In real life, my name's Norman Shelley. And it was my friend Carlton Hobbs who played Sherlock Holmes. I was Dr. Watson. And Michael Hardwick wrote the script for this BBC production from London. I hope we may have the pleasure of your company again very soon. 
for that third and last part of the Valley of Fear. There's no community like a Cenex community. And that's why every Cenex store is so proud to serve theirs by supporting local athletic teams, promoting the arts, and making sure each store is a place its neighbors can find what they need, catch up with their friends, and stay connected. It's also why we give back, helping to make the wonderful places we call home the best they can be. Your local Cenex doesn't just work in your town, it lives there. The store next door, powered locally at Cenex. 